My name is James. I serve as the lead pastor here at Freedom Village Church. Uh, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, well, today uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 16, uh, and our focus today is, is really simple, really simple. We're just going to be walking through the resurrection of Jesus. I'm not sure if you know this or not, but uh, today is a really big deal for Christians. Uh, this day is of central importance because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, actually all of this here uh, is a waste of time. It's a waste of your time. The worship songs, uh, the serving, um, all of the live streaming, like the video, all of it, um, your generosity, um, all my teaching, the prayers that we've been doing today, all of it is a waste of time if Jesus didn't rise. And here's why. Here's why. Because if Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and remains dead, that means that he wasn't God, that he didn't die for our sins, that he can't offer us anything. He can't offer us joy and hope. And therefore, if Jesus is still dead, then actually Jesus doesn't matter. He was just another person in history. But also, what this also means is the flip side is true. That if Jesus did rise from the dead, then he is truly the Lord. He is the Savior. He is God. If he is risen, then he has been given all authority uh, in heaven and in earth. If he is risen, then he is able to offer us joy, hope, and life. And therefore, believing in him and believing in the resurrection is the most significant and most urgent thing in our lives. The truth of the resurrection is of central importance. It's the hinge, actually, of God's redemptive plan and story. And so there's actually a a great responsibility on us today. A great responsibility. First, for me to explain this clearly, but also a responsibility for you. A responsibility for you to to listen well, to, to, to truly understand these words, and then hopefully believe and live out these truths. So today... It's going to be mostly simple. It's pretty simple. We're going to talk about the resurrection. And then we're all going to leave this place full of joy, worshiping in our hearts. Sound good? Oh, you're, much more, you're much more responsive than the first service. All right? Great. <laughs> so if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. And we're just going to walk through this text, these eight verses together, starting in verse 1. This is what God's word says. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him, that being Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So we'll take our first pause there this afternoon. Uh, We know that the, the Jewish Sabbath 
typically or traditionally began at nightfall on Friday and then ended at nightfall or sundown on Saturday. And so just so we're getting our our timeline and this whole story straight in our minds this afternoon, um, we know that Jesus dies on the cross on Friday afternoon. It's actually like 3 p.m. And then after he dies, we know that he's buried in a borrowed tomb shortly after that, before nightfall on Friday, before the start of the Sabbath. We also know that it was Jewish custom to take a variety of spices and for the the purpose of anointing the dead body and, and minimizing the smell of the body, they would treat the body with these this variety of spices. You see, the, the tombs uh, where dead bodies were laid uh, in this time, they were commonly shared tombs. They were shared amongst uh, several different people. And so it was really important to do this, to go through this ritual. But because Jesus died and, and was buried right before the beginning of the Sabbath on Friday, no one could go through this ceremony with him right away because you couldn't work on the Sabbath. It wasn't allowed. You couldn't go through these rituals on the Sabbath. And so that's why here in Mark 16, we see this delay. Jesus is buried late afternoon on Friday, but now it's early Sunday morning. Most likely it's 5 a.m., 6 a.m. in the morning. And we see at that time these women, this group of women, goes to the marketplace, buys some spices, and then they head towards the tomb to perform this ritual to complete Jesus' burial. That's what's taking place here. And I want to add another important note here as well. And actually, this is going to this point is really going to take us or carry us through uh, the remainder of this text. Notice that, that Mark here is giving us some, some hints or indication that what he is writing is in fact true. It's very important for Mark all throughout his gospel that what Mark is recording here, he wants us to know that everything he's saying is a historically verifiable story and not just some legend or, or some fairy tale, a myth. You know, for, first, notice this. Notice this. None of Jesus' closest inner circle are here in this scene. His tightest circle, his closest disciples, they're not there that day. You need to do a bit, of, a bit more studying of Mark's writings, Mark's gospel to pick this up. But, but we know throughout the, the entirety of Jesus' ministry and his teaching, he has been telling people that he was going to rise on the third day. He's been telling them this. So, for example, in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, this is what Jesus says. Listen to these words. The Son of Man, Jesus speaking of himself, must suffer many things. And then he says, and after three days... Rise again. And Jesus says the exact same thing in chapter 9 and the exact same thing in chapter 10. And knowing what we know of Mark, 
if, if Mark records uh, Jesus saying something three times, that tells us something. That means it's really important. But also, it means that it's very likely that this was one of Jesus' common teachings, right? That he said this often. He went around sort of teaching this to, to a variety of people. And so what's really strange, it's odd, about this scene here in Mark 16 is that, again, none of Jesus' inner circle are there. None of them are here. Jesus had told them again and again and again, I'm going to rise. I'm going to rise. I have to suffer. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise. But, apparent, I'm, going, but I'm going to rise, excuse me. But apparently, they didn't believe him. They didn't trust him. Or it was just out of their understanding completely that this could happen. And we know that because, again, they're not there on that Sunday morning. In fact, not only are his closest disciples not at the tomb, in John chapter 20, it actually tells us that the disciples are hiding in a room. They're hiding in fear. And not only that, they've locked the door behind them. And before we, you know, scold the men and then praise the women for going to the tomb, let's understand as well, these women who are going to the tomb, they're not there to witness a resurrection. They're not there going to the tomb that, that day with great faith and anticipation of a resurrection. No, they are, they are sad. This is a scene that's it's somber, dark, they are on their way to perform this, this burial ritual to anoint Jesus' dead body, which again emphasizes the point that no one, not even those closest to him, who heard him teach even about the resurrection, were expecting a resurrection to take place. And I say all that to say, if Mark were making this up, if he was just fabricating this story, wouldn't he at least, wouldn't it have been smart of him to at least have one of Jesus' disciples there on the third day saying, hey, maybe we should check this out. I, I know he died, but you remember what Jesus said? Maybe we should actually believe what he said. Maybe that would be a good thing for us to do. But Mark doesn't record that because no one is there. Because again, no one expected a resurrection to happen at all. Mark tells us that, shows us that clearly. A resurrection from the dead was just as impossible and inconceivable for them 2,000 years ago as it is for us today. No one sees this coming. They're all in the dark because resurrections just don't happen. People don't just resurrect, right? Well, the second clue that, that, Mark's, that Mark gives us here, that this is true, that what he is saying is verifiable, what he's saying true, is that there's a very, notice, there's a very purposeful and intentional repetition that Mark gives us, starting in Mark 15, verse 40. That what we actually see is three times in just nine verses, Mark actually takes the time to write down, to record the names of the witnesses 
who, 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 who experienced or saw for themselves Jesus' death, his burial, and now here, the empty tomb or the resurrection. If you have your Bible, you can see this. I think we have this up on the screen as well, if we change the slide. In Mark 15, verse 40, we see the list of the names of the women who were at the cross, right? You see it up there. And then a few verses later, you see in Mark 15, 47, we see a- another list of names of the people, the women who were at his burial. They saw the tomb where he was laid. And then we turn over again, we've already been here, but turn over just two verses later, Mark 16, verse 1, and there's that list again. Mary, Salome, you know, they're there. They're there. And, and so why does Mark do this? Why does he list all these names within these short nine verses? Well, what Mark is doing by giving us these names is telling us that this is a historical account. Uh, these are Mark's sources. These are his eyewitnesses. Um, I'm not sure how many of you um, had to write a lot of research papers um, in university. I had to do a lot of that for my, my master's and my studies. Um, where I went to school, you know, when it came to writing uh, stuff for the Bible or research for the Bible, we had to write in what's called Turabian format. I don't know if you ever heard of that. Some of you have APA, Turabian, whatever. And it is necessary, it is necessary from the professors that you cite your sources, that you do your research, but then you also properly cite your sources. And so there's all these footnotes, and the footnotes are almost more meticulous and annoying than the actual paper itself. It's just so time-consuming. But we do that to make sure that what we're saying or that we, is trustworthy, that's verifiable, that's not just an opinion or just your own thought or, or thinking. And so in the same way, in the same way, these are Mark's sources here. These are his citations. So Mark, in doing this, he's basically saying, you can take my word for it. You can trust what I'm saying. You can trust that what I'm writing to you now is true. But, but, if you want to check with those women, all those women, go ahead because they're here. Right? Remember, this is a really small community as well, Jewish community. He's like, you know their names. Here are the names. If you don't believe me, go ahead and ask them because they can verify. They were there. They can verify what they saw with their own eyes. That's what Mark is doing here. And then the last thing that I want to point out that Mark does for us to, again, emphasize the, the fact that what he is writing is, is viable, is true, is, is I want you to see the remarkable reality that Mark not only gives us eyewitnesses to these events, but that these witnesses were all women. They're all women. And that really serves as an important clue from Mark, that this story is true. Um, I think a lot of us already know this, uh, but if you, you don't, because you don't love history, maybe. Um, but I think a lot of us know this, that in ancient societies, women were sort of outca- social outcasts in many ways. They were marginalized, on the out, put on the outskirts of society. And therefore, their testimony wasn't given much credit at all. Um, in fact, if, if women, uh, in fact, women weren't even allowed to speak in the court of law. And so let's say, for example, um, 
there was a, there was an accident outside. And in the morning I said, let's pretend there was a car accident. But then I realized there's no cars in the first century. So I was like, okay, there's a chariot accident. <laughs> okay. All right. There's a chariot accident out, out front. And there's a group of four women who are on the left side of the road and they all see it. And there's two guys on the right side of the road and they see it. And then we, the, the police come up, you know, the Roman soldiers go up and what happens? Like, well, we got to bring this to court. If four women were there and two men were there, they would just dismiss the women. They don't even count. Um, we just take the word of the men. And that's because you needed twice the amount of women plus one to even be heard in court. Not to even accept what they say is true, but just you can't even speak. So again, five guys, there need to be 10 women plus one just for them to even speak. That's how it was in those days. That's what it was like in ancient culture. And so I say that to say this is so important for us to understand. If you were going to make up a resurrection story, if these group of apostles were sitting together and like, all right, here's the thing. Jesus has died, but this is a great opportunity for us to create this new religion where all these people are going to follow us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pretend that Jesus rose from the dead, and the eyewitnesses will make them all women. That would be beyond stupid. <laughs> because it, women weren't, women's testimonies weren't even accepted in, in culture. And so why would you choose women to be the first eyewitnesses unless that's exactly what happened? And Mark not only records it this way, but let's understand that all of the other Gospels record it the exact same way. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first eyewitnesses to this event were women. They were the ones who were there at the crucifixion, at the burial site, and now here Sunday morning. And so with that in mind, knowing that Mark wants us to know that what he is saying is true, let's look at what the women heard and saw that Sunday morning. Verse 3. And they were saying to one another, the women, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now, we know that these tombs um, in the first century were made out of massive, like large rock. And that, that rock would sort of be bored out, hollowed out to, to sort of create like a cave, okay? And then in front of that, uh, that cave-like, you know, tomb, what they would do is they would carve these massive circular stones and they would fit them in place sort of in this groove so that you could roll the stone back and forth in front of the tomb, in front of that cave, that sort of served as a door. Um, actually, even today, if, you've, if you go to Jerusalem, if you go to Israel, go to Jerusalem, you can see these tombs there even today. They're still there. It's incredible. And you can go up, and um, you can actually see the, the stones as well. And I remember when I was there, um, the first time I saw it, I actually, like, I wasn't that impressed because the stone was like maybe like this, this tall on me, right? And I'm pretty tall, but it was like this. And I expected this like massive thing. And so my mind, I remember when I saw it, my mind went here. And, I, and in my guess, like my, my arrogance and like my manhood, I was like, 
oh, yeah, I, I understand. I could go push that stone, you know? I remember, and then I remember going up to it, and when I put my hand on the stone, I couldn't move it at all. That thing is heavy. This high, but maybe like this thick, just solid, solid rock. And so it's understandable. It's understandable then that when these women are walking to the tomb, they're having this chit-chat, and they're wondering, how in the world are we going to open the door to fulfill this burial ritual? How are we going to put the spices on Jesus? But then when they arrive at the tomb, they get the shock of their life. Verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Now, um, it's kind of fun to, to compare the different gospel records or gospel accounts of this. Uh, at least it's really fun for me to, to look through all the different gospel records and accounts of this. There's maybe like three of you in here who are like, yeah, I would do that. I would line up all the gospels and go through it. And others of you are like, that's why you're up there, to tell me what, what it says. Okay. <laughs> Then, um, by the way, that's not my job. Study the scriptures for yourself. All right, study it for yourself. <laughs> I'm not going to go on a tangent. All right, <laughs> I had to pause myself. All right, Lord, it's about the resurrection and keeping it simple. <laughs> it's really fun to do that, actually, to compare, because especially in this instance, um, if you look at the recording of this scene in particular, you, you really, you truly get a sense of the different personalities of the different authors who wrote the Gospels, right? So, for example, in Matthew, Matthew is, you know, he was a tax collector. Um, he, he was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He wrote a record of this as well, an account of this. And we see it in Matthew 28, verse 2. And so, look at what Matthew says about this event. Look at this. He says this, And behold... There was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. It's Matthew. And then Mark, describing this exact same incredible scene. This is classic. Yeah, go back to the slide before. Says this. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. I don't know. That just made me laugh a lot. Um, some, of you, uh, some of you men here in the room, um, you are a lot like Matthew. And some of you are a lot like Mark. Man, a few words. <laughs> um, different personalities. We see that here. Mark is very straight to the point, very black and white. He does this throughout the whole gospel, his whole gospel, his whole letter. That's why it's the shortest as well. Just move on one to one to one to one, one scene after another. And he does that here. He just moves on to get to the main point. Keep going. Verse 5, and entering the tomb, so the stoles rolled back. The women enter the tomb, and what happens? They saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Now, uh, we know that this is an angel inside the tomb. 
The other gospel records of this are much more vivid and make that point much, much more clear. Okay? Um, there's actually, if you study the four gospels, there's actually two angels at the scene here. The one came down, sat on the, the, the rock that was rolled away. They enter into the tomb, and then there appears two angels, one at the foot of where he was laid, one at the head of where he was laid. And so that angel that was outside, when they go in, appears inside again. Right? It's just an, this epic scene. And so we can understand why they're alarmed, as Mark says. They're alarmed. That's a great word here to sort of give us a picture of what's happening here. That word alarmed here in the text, it's actually the same word, the same word that is used in the Garden of Gethsemane, which happened Thursday night, around midnight. The Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was facing this intense eternal, internal uh, distress about the reality that he was about to go to the cross and that he was about to die for the sins of the world. He was alarmed. It's the same word, at that reality. Same word. And so these women, let's understand this point. They are not terrified here for their life in that they feel like they're, or they think that they're going to die. It just means that they can't comprehend what they are seeing in front of them. That's what this means. They can't grasp the reality of what's happening. They're just totally perplexed. A good English word for this, I think, is bewilderment. Okay? They're just, it's fear, trembling, awe, reverence, kind of shock, disbelief, all mixed into one word. They're alarmed. That's what Mark says. That's the scene here. Can't grasp it. And then, and then Mark says, that angel who's in the tomb speaks. Says this, And he, the angel, said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. In other words, The angel says to these women, do not fear. Don't be afraid. Uh, Don't be confused. You've come to the right place. (laughs) You're at the right place. You got the address right. Yes, the Jesus that was crucified, he was here. He was laid here. He was buried here. But now he's no longer here. He is risen. He has been raised. We'll keep moving. Verse 7. But go, the angel says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he, that's Jesus, he told you. Now, um, I I just want to highlight what the angel doesn't say here. Okay, what the angel doesn't say. Notice that the angel doesn't say, hey, ladies, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and tell those good-for-nothing cowards who are locked up and hiding in a room, I want you to go and tell them that Jesus doesn't want anything to do with them. He's done with them. They're going to be judged. (laughs) Wait and see what's coming for you. Notice it doesn't say that. Not at all. The angel says the opposite, actually. Go to Galilee. Why? Because Jesus is going to be there, and he wants to see you. 
And let's be clear about even what that means. Um, This isn't one of those like, hey, you guys are in trouble. Like Jesus wants to see you. Like some of you, you know, when you get that, like if your mom ever said to you when you were little, like, hey, you're in trouble. You better go in the room. Your dad wants to see you. You know, if I got that when I was little, I knew, oh no, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. I don't know. And I'd have to go pick. It's going to be the wooden spoon, the, or the belt, or the paw. My dad is even bigger than me. He's huge. His hand, I've told you before, it's like this. So I knew you never picked the paw. I went with the wooden spoon every time. Every time. It's split. So this day, my mom keeps it. She's like, they, they would, man, I was not a good kid. I was not a good kid. Anyway, off track. <laughs> off track. But you know, that's what it's like, right? Your dad wants to see you. You're in trouble. That's not what's here. That's not what's here. The angel's saying, no, Jesus wants to see you in that he wants to be with you. He's waiting to be with you. And, and I love this point here. Maybe, I mean, the resurrection, he's risen is the best part, right? But this might be second to it for me. This is such an easy detail to skip over, but don't. Please don't. If you like to highlight, underline in your Bible circle, highlight, underline that phrase there, verse 7, and Peter. And Peter. Love this little detail. The angel says, go and tell the disciples that Jesus is risen, that he's going to meet with you. And listen, he says, go and tell Peter too. That's an incredible detail. Because listen, listen. Let's remember that just, just days before this, hours really before this, Peter had betrayed Jesus, denied Jesus, and turned his back on Jesus. And so when these women went with this news, this good news to meet Jesus in Galilee, that Jesus wanted to see them, surely, surely Peter would have thought, as he heard that news, surely Peter would have thought, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure Jesus wants to see all of them. But definitely not me. Surely not me, after what I did. And so, and so the angel adds, and Peter. Peter, Jesus wants to see you too which is just such a, a sweet reminder of God's incredible love and amazing grace despite all of our sins and all of our failures. This tells us so clearly here in Mark's gospel that there is grace even for traitors like Peter, that there is grace even for cowards who have abandoned Jesus and are hiding in a locked, closed room. And there is grace, therefore, for you and me, regardless of who we are, regardless of what we have done. And then verse 8, verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Can you, just, can you just imagine, can you just imagine with me how these women must have felt? I mean, seriously, like, what are they supposed to do with all of those spices that they bought? What are they supposed to do? You think they were frustrated? 
we bought all these spices. We want to, supposed to anoint Jesus' body, right? What are we going to do? He, are we going to get a refund, you know? <laughs> no, but, but seriously, here, here's what happens. We know that the other gospel recordings of this say that the women went immediately, immediately, to find and tell the other disciples. And so when Mark writes here, when Mark writes here that they said nothing to anyone, what that probably means is that they didn't tell anyone along the way. In other words, um, the phrase would be that they made a beeline. Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> they made a beeline, just straight, went straight to the other disciples. They didn't stop for anything or anyone. They just hurried. They were rushing to find and tell the other disciples what they had heard and what they saw. In Matthew's gospel, we're going to go back to Matthew just for a second here. It says that, it says this about these women as they run out of the tomb. It says this. I think this really ties it together for us. Matthew 28 verse 8 says this. They hear the news. They hear the news that Jesus is not there. He had risen. They get the message, go back and tell the other disciples what you've heard, what you've saw. And then it says this. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear. Remember, Mark says they were afraid. With fear, there it is again. But then I'm so glad, so glad Matthew makes this point as well. He adds this. With fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. So again, again, These women, they're in total shock. They're in total awe. They're in disbelief. Disbelief. But as they are running to find the disciples, as they are running, that that fear, that bewilderment that they had, now the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus had done is now as they're running down the road, it's settling into their hearts and their fear, bewilderment, changes and starts turning, Matthew says, to great joy. They're filled with joy. They're understanding the gospel. And as they were on their way, running to meet the disciples, Matthew says this, Behold, Jesus Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they, and they came up. They came up to him and, and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Go to the disciples, just as the angels told you. Go to them. Tell them to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. These women, that Sunday morning, they see. They see not just an empty tomb. They, see, they, they not only do they see angels, but they see the risen Jesus. No longer dead. No longer buried in a tomb. Jesus was alive. And when they saw him, when they saw him, when, when they gazed upon the resurrected Jesus, they did the only thing the only thing that any of us can do when we understand, truly understand the truth that Jesus, though crucified, though buried in a tomb for three days, had risen from 
the grave, conquering sin, Satan, and death. The only response, listen, the only response, the only proper response to seeing and encountering the risen Jesus, the only response is to worship him, to worship him. And so that's what they do. They fall at his feet, and I'm sure, I'm sure, with with tears of joy running down their face, they grasp Jesus' feet, and they just begin to praise his name, worship him for what he has done. And, And so the question, the question for all of us today is actually really simple. Is all this really true? Can this story be true? That Sunday, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago on that Sunday morning, was the tomb empty because Jesus had resurrected from the dead? Well, for those of you who are here in this room this, this afternoon who don't believe this, don't believe in a resurrection, or those of you watching online, maybe you just tuned in, you're like, oh, it's Easter, maybe I'll check out that whole church thing. Um, This is what we know. This is what we know. And even, I know the majority of us here, we are followers of Jesus. We do believe in a resurrection. And so let me say to you, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, please, to you, take careful note of this as well, I want us all as a church community to deeply understand this so that you can be, um, be strengthened in your faith and better equipped, actually, to share what you believe is true. We've been studying 1 Peter. Right? Be ready to give an account of the hope that's within you. I'm going to help you do that here. Okay? So if you, if you don't believe in this, then let me tell you what's true. If you do believe in this, let me remind you what is true so that you can be equipped to share your faith. Okay? So this is, this is what even non-Christian scholars and historians accept as being true about this whole story and about Christianity. So if we were to just take the Bible and throw it away, this is what we know to be true, even from non-Christians, scholars. We know for certain that there was a man named Jesus who lived. Okay, we know that for certain. That he was professionally, professionally executed by the Romans. And that he was buried in a tomb. We know that for certain. We know that for certain that the tomb that Jesus was buried in was discovered, discovered empty after he died. The tomb was empty. Right? It might be debated. It actually is. It's debated why the tomb was empty three days later. But the fact that the tomb was empty is not a discussion. It's not a discussion. Even from non-Christian scholars, they admit, yes, the tomb was empty. Something happened to Jesus' body. We know that after Jesus died on the cross, the disciples, his closest disciples about a group of 500 or so of them, claimed to have experiences 
in which they believed that they were witnessing and seeing the bodily risen Jesus. And we also know that based on what they saw, that that group of disciples, they changed. They went from guys who were locked up, women who were locked up, no belief, no faith, hiding in a room, locked fear, cowards. They changed from that in an instant to being bold and courageous proclaimers of the death, the burial, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. None of that is seriously debated in scholarship. Do the research for yourself. None of that is seriously debated. And there's more. We know that Jesus' death and resurrection became the center of Christian teaching and the Christian faith from the very beginning. The very beginning. It wasn't like 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, like the doctrine and theology, theology started to shift and change. And then 300 years later, a council got together and be like, here's what really happened. Jesus rose from the dead. Let's start teaching that happened. No, no, no. From day one, day one, the death, burial, and resurrection was the center of Christian teaching. And as the result of that teaching, the church of Jesus Christ was born. It was birthed out of that teaching. That in a culture, in a culture that didn't believe in resurrection, in a culture that didn't accept resurrection as being viable, possible, Christianity spread throughout the known Roman world, the entire world within 200 years. Total transformation of the culture took place. Jews, Greeks, Romans, thousands upon thousands and thousands changed their culturally accepted views, their worldview, their philosophy, and their theology. Don't underestimate the significance of that. I mean, think about this. Let's just focus on Jewish people. Think about this. Jewish people started to worship Jesus as God. The man that they saw and walked around with, the human being, they, they turned and started worshiping him as God, which was, by the way, blasphemy worthy of death. You should die in their culture, in their religion, Judaism, if you are worshiping someone other than God, they turn and worship Jesus. Suddenly. Also, let's understand that for, for Jewish people, their primary day of worship was Saturday, right? Saturday, rooted in tradition, the command, the Sabbath, thousands of years, thousands of years, they're worshiping on Saturday on the Sabbath. And almost immediately, overnight, it changed to Sunday. Like in a weekend. Like imagine if today we're like, okay, Sunday, Easter worship, great. See you next week. And by the way, from now on, the rest of Freedom Village history, we're doing it on Mondays. See you there. Why? Why would we do that? Right? It would be crazy. Right? You'd be, what, what, something significant must have happened for them to believe that they should move their holy day of worship from Saturday to Sunday, and they do that. And by the way, again, none of this is debated. This isn't like the preacher talk or like, you know, the, the Bible says, you know, you know, the Bible says this. No, this is, yes, the Bible says it, but outside of the scriptures, 
it's written that this happened as well. Non-Christian scholars, New Testament scholars, can you believe that there's actually non-Christian New Testament scholars? They even believe it and say that this is true. They admit that that happened. These are facts. And wait, there's more. (laughs) There's more. This one's big. We know that Jesus' own mother and brothers started to worship Jesus as God after they claimed to see him risen from the dead. Think about that. Think about, ladies in here, think about being a mom, having a son, and what would it take for you What would it take for you to turn around and devote your whole life to worshiping your son, a Jewish religious woman, worshiping your son as the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, God of the universe, creator of all things? What would it take for you to do that, ladies? Almost overnight. A lot of us here have brothers. I have two of them, two of them older than me. So I'm in the position sort of of Jesus' other brothers, right? I have older brothers. I'm just... Thought about, this, thought about this a lot. I've said this here before, even. What would it take? What would it take, if those of you have a brother, what would it take for you to turn around overnight and worship your brother as God? <laughs> to devote your entire life to him. Sacrifice everything for your brother. Your physical brother. He is God. By the way, hey, you need to worship him. You, 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 you. Worship my brother. He's God. Because let's understand as well, it's also accepted and known that his mother and brothers before the resurrection, during Jesus' ministry, were going around telling people that Jesus is crazy. It's recorded, actually, twice. Jesus is doing these miracles. He's up late. He's telling people that he could forgive sins. And so the brothers and Mary go to find him, it says. And it's subtle in the Gospels. They're they're being nice. It says that they go to take him away. In other words, my son and my brother is out of his mind. He's lost it. Let's bring him back to Nazareth and put him away in a room. That's what they believed. That's what they thought of Jesus. That's what they were talking amongst themselves and to others about Jesus. But now it changes And they start to worship him. And again, I'm not just talking about what's written in scripture. Even non-Christian scholars admit that's true. That happened. So here's what we know. Here's what we know for certain. It'll be one of the only times you'll hear me say, forget the Bible. (laughs) Okay, but I'm telling you that even. Forget it. Pretend it doesn't exist. Here's what we know. The world changed. It changed. It was turned upside down after the women left the tomb that day. Something happened. That's not debated. And so, given all of that data, those realities, how do we explain what happened that Sunday morning in Jerusalem? How do we explain it? 
And let's understand this as well. We cannot remain neutral here or just ignore this. You have to have an opinion about this. If Jesus didn't didn't really rise from the dead, then what happened? What's the answer to all of this? Did the disciples just lie? Maybe you think that, maybe. But if they lied, for what reason? For what? What was for them to gain, even? Because we know that the majority of those disciples, those earliest disciples, actually died for refusing to deny the resurrection. They died for this. So what was for them to gain by fabricating this story and inventing this religion? There's no money for them at all. We know that. Right? The early disciples, they go around and they said, silver and gold, right? They're asking, hey, we need, there's a beggar on the side. Hey, we need help. Can you help us? They pull out their pockets. Silver and gold, we have none. Got, we have nothing. <laughs> Broke. <laughs> they didn't do it for money. There's no power. There's no authority. There's no status in the culture. There's no prestige. None of it came along with this teaching. Only persecution, imprisonment, beatings, Stoning, rejection, suffering, and for so many disciples, death. Death. And so for some of us, for some of us here, some of us watching online maybe, maybe we, we truly start, maybe for the first time, we truly, we truly start to see this. And for others, those of us who already believe in the resurrection, my hope is that you're just now, you're just encouraged again, emboldened, and and once again, full of joy that the only, the only reasonable, even talk with me practically, the only reasonable, practical explanation for all of this, for all of it, is that these witnesses were in fact telling the truth. That they saw, they witnessed Jesus crucified, buried, and when they arrived at the tomb that Sunday morning, Jesus actually, Jesus was not there. He had risen And if Jesus, if Jesus is risen from the grave, if he is truly risen from the dead, let me tell you what that means. Let me tell you what Jesus' resurrection accomplished. Let me tell you why this matters for us, even 2,000 years later. First of all, as I said from the very start, the resurrection declares declares that Jesus is God. That's why this matters. Because if there's a resurrection, we have God. (laughs) Romans 1, 4 says this, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. How? How? By his resurrection from the dead. Which means... 
the resurrection is the great exclamation point to Jesus' life and Jesus' work. And it brings all that he did and all that he said into focus. Everything about Jesus, everything makes sense after his resurrection. Because of his resurrection, we can now understand, finally, we can understand why John the Baptist said, prepare the way for the Lord. We can understand now why God the Father at Jesus' baptism peered down from heaven and said, you, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now we can finally understand why Jesus said this to start his earthly ministry. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now we can understand why Jesus taught with authority, why he could heal the sick, why he could cast out demons, why he was right to say to people, follow me, and said bold, courageous things like, I can forgive even sin. We understand now, because of the resurrection, Jesus was and is God, come in the flesh, to rescue his people. And his resurrection affirms all of that to be true. He is God, the one who came to seek and save the lost. The resurrection also declares that Jesus conquered sin. It declares that Jesus conquered sin. I know every single one of you watched and listened to my sermon on Good Friday, right? Okay, but if you didn't, if you missed it, let me remind you, let let me remind you that, that on the cross, Jesus took the penalty for our sin. Jesus took the penalty for our guilt. Jesus bore the wrath of God that we deserved in our place as our substitute. And listen, the resurrection of Jesus is the great affirmation of God that Jesus' work of redemption was accepted, is complete, and is fulfilled. That now, there's no more guilt, no more shame, no more wrath to bear. It was all paid for on the cross. And the resurrection is the affirmation that Jesus' work was truly finished. On the cross, he said, it is finished, and the resurrection affirms, oh yeah, it was finished. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, pointless, and you are still in your sins. Futile, pointless, useless, which is what I told you. This is all a waste of our time if there's no resurrection. It's all a waste of time. But listen, (laughs) here's the really good news. Since Jesus has been raised... Now, if you are in Christ, if you believe that Jesus is Lord, 
that means you are no longer in your sins. The resurrection also declares that Jesus conquered death. You see, where where sin is paid for, where sin is paid for, there is no more death. There is only life. Resurrection life. You could think of it this way. Um, Our church fathers, uh, many of them have repeated this phrase. They say it this way. Jesus' own resurrection declares that he has dealt the death blow to death. I love that. I'll say that again. Jesus' own resurrection declares that he has dealt the death blow to death. In other words, because Jesus is risen, he has killed death. That even though physical death still lingers around our world, death's final days are numbered. Death will be no more. And Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee. It's a stamp of that truth. The resurrection also declares a future bodily resurrection for all who embrace him by faith. A future bodily resurrection for you and I, for those of us who put our faith in Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 2 Corinthians 4, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So this is our great hope that the resurrection promises us not only new hearts, not only new minds, but also new bodies. We will be perfect, sinless, pain-free, and made whole with Jesus in his presence forever. You'll be able to, to dance to swim, to sing, to enjoy conversation, uh, to, to enjoy nature, to go hiking, to eat, to drink amazing coffee. Amen. Okay. We, along with this world, will be redeemed and made perfect because of the resurrection. So this world, this world is not all that we'll ever have. Listen to me. This world is not all that we'll ever have. In fact, this world that you and I so often, we care deeply about the things of this world. We think about the things of this world. What I'm doing, where I'm headed, where I'm going, who's with me along the way. All of this. We stress about this life in this world so much, so much. But, but, but compared to the world, to the new earth that is to come, this, this earth is like a candle compared to the sun. We can look forward with absolute hope. Absolute hope today because of Jesus' Jesus's resurrection. And then finally, we close things up this Easter with this reality. That the resurrection assures us that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. That if Jesus said that he would rise on the third day, 
He taught that throughout his whole ministry. And that if he actually fulfilled that promise, and I believe that he did, then we can always take Jesus at his word. He is reliable and trustworthy, faithful to all of his promises. And what are Jesus' final words to us in the scriptures? His last words. It's Revelation 22, verse 20. This is what Jesus says to us. Surely, Surely, I am coming soon. I'm coming back. I'm coming back for my church. To which we say, with John here, the author of this, we agree with him here. I hope you do. We say this, amen. Come, come, Lord Jesus. Please come soon. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. It's only a matter of time. He is coming back to take his rightful place as the forever king and the forever Lord. Because Jesus is risen, because he is risen, it means that he is alive. It means that he is still at work. It means that Jesus is still, still even now, offering to forgive you, to forgive you of your sin. He is waiting, actually, waiting for you. He wants to lavish you with his love. Right now, for anyone Anywhere, Jesus is offering you life and fullness of joy forever. He wants to heal you of your pain, rid you of your heartache. He wants to bring perspective to your suffering. He wants to give you rest. Jesus wants to be with you forever. He told the disciples, first, go and meet me. I want to see you. I want to be with you. And he says the same thing to you and I today. Come to me. I want to be with you forever. And we know all of these things to be true. We can take hold of this grace. We can cling to these promises today because Jesus is risen. There is no one like Jesus. No one. There never will be. So let's choose to believe in Jesus and his resurrection. And like the women at the tomb after receiving the good news that Sunday morning, let's run to Jesus. Let's embrace Jesus. Let's fall at the feet of Jesus. And let's worship him all the days of our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray.